Open your Bibles up to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11. Page 1135, if you're using one of those pew Bibles. Page 1135, the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We're going to begin looking at verse 11 this morning. But before we do that, I don't want to forget. I was informed that Avery May Stevens is with us this morning somewhere. Is that true? Wes and Vanessa, are you here? Wes is here, standing in for his wife and daughter. So bless you, brother. What good news that is. Yes, indeed. I didn't want to forget that. Foothill Bible Church, by the grace of God, exists to diligently pursue Christ and... Oh, come on. That's weak sauce. Let's try that again. By the grace of God, Foothill Bible Church exists to diligently pursue Christ and... Okay, there we go. To courageously... Proclaim him to make known his glories, his excellencies throughout the community and indeed throughout the world. That's why we're here. That's what it's all about. Preaching the gospel to people. And as we go about preaching that glorious good news, we can and should employ a number of historic proofs as to the authenticity of the Christian faith. That is a very good and legitimate means by which we preach the gospel. And there are many evidences available to us. They are not our first line of defense, but we do not have an irrational faith. We have a faith that is absolutely grounded in reality, in truth. And the historic evidences are examples of that reality and truth. And there are many, many of them available to us not the least of which is the existence of the Jewish people. No other race of people has suffered such concentrated and continual persecution and efforts to exterminate them, yet by the providential hand of God they continue to survive even to this day. That, my friends, is evidence of the glory of God. During the reign of Russia's Peter the Great, an aged preacher was imprisoned because of his testimony for Christ. One night, the czar called the aged saint before him and he asked this question. He said, can you give me one infallible proof to verify the Bible? The old man replied, yes, sire, the Jew." Frederick the Great once said to his chaplain, show me a miracle. The chaplain replied, sire, it is the Jews. Napoleon was asked by his marshals, who were all atheists, if he believed there was a God. Napoleon pointed to Marshal Massena, a Jew, and said, gentlemen, there is the unmistakable argument that there is a God. 
Israel is the only nation ever created by Almighty God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34, God says, Has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Answer, no. No. We are continuing our study here in the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. It's our study on the restoration of Israel. That's what I've entitled this series of messages, which continues to get longer as we go. But anyway, in the text before us this morning, which we are not going to finish, but in any case, in the text before us this morning, I want you to see three duties that should occupy all Christians who understand God's purpose in turning from Israel to the Gentiles. Once we understand God's purpose in all of this, it brings upon us duties, things we should do, things we must do. And I want to look at those with you this morning. Now, last time in verses 1 through 10, as we began this chapter, Paul raised for us an answer to question of whether God had rejected all the Jews because of their unbelief. You remember in chapter 10, he had labored away at demonstrating how Israel had hardened her heart against her Messiah because of their disobedient and obstinate hearts. They had refused that which Christ had offered to them. And then after the resurrection, when Christ sent out his apostles to preach and Peter came and preached to the people and there was there at Pentecost a A number of people, about 3,000 who were saved, and then they continued to preach there. And there was some influx of people who would receive this good news. But for the vast majority of the nation, they continued to harden their heart and cut off themselves from God. Paul labored away here, as I have been saying over and over to you, chapter 9, speaking about how God's mystery of election figures into all of this hardness of heart. And in chapter 10, laying the blame squarely upon Israel for her refusal to believe, and then entering into chapter 11 for the final aspect of what's called his theodicy, that is, his, his justification of God, that is, his, his demonstration that God's promises remain true, that God is not a liar, by speaking of Israel's future restoration. And he raised the question in verse 1 of chapter 11, has God rejected his people? That is, have they been entirely fully cut off? Are there no Jews at all to to experience this great salvation? And of course, Paul answers that question, may it never be. He says, I myself am a Jew. I am part of a remnant, which he goes on to demonstrate. And then he speaks at the end here in verses 7 through 10. And he talks again about the mystery of God and his hardening of the nation. That leads us now into the next part of his argument that begins here in verse 11. The first duty that I've listed for you here is that we should protest. The first thing we should do is protest when we come to understand God's purpose in turning from Israel to the Gentiles. That should create and cause to well up within our heart a certain protest. So let me see if I can unpack this for you a little bit. 
God has chosen, Paul says, in these present days, a remnant out of Israel to embrace the gospel. Verse 7. And he has chosen to harden the rest. The question is, does that mean that he has finished with Israel as a nation? Is he done with them as a nation? We know he's not done with them as individuals. Paul has demonstrated that already. The question that now comes up is, well, since he has hardened the majority of the nation, verse 7, does that mean he's done with them as a nation? Is the nation of Israel done with? Paul says, I say then, verse 11, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? This idea of stumbling refers to their rejection of Christ and the righteousness that God has made available through him. Back to chapter 9. Verses 31 to 33, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. So this stumbling, this rejection of Christ, this rejection of the righteousness that is offered to them through Christ is their stumbling that Paul speaks of here. And he says, this stumbling, this refusal, has it led to their fall? That is, has it led to their irretrievable spiritual ruin? Has the nation been ruined? Have they stumbled beyond recovery? Have they been reduced, as it were, to a tiny remnant? Language again of verse 7. And that tiny remnant is all they'll ever be. Merely a stump with a small sprig that sticks out of it, perhaps. Is their ruin irreversible? This is the questions that are going on here. Because the evidence certainly looks that way. The evidence certainly looks that way. Throughout the book of Acts... Israel responds to the gospel message with a disobedient and an argumentative heart. To use the words of chapter 10, verse 21. In fact, that very reality prompted Paul on a number of occasions to turn away from his own people and to preach to the Gentiles, and they were eager to hear. For example, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 44 and Paul's first missionary journey, he's there in Antioch, which is located in modern-day Turkey. And it says, In the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the Word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the Word of God should be spoken to you first, But since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And it goes on to say the Gentiles received this with incredible joy. Further on, second missionary journey, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 4. There, Paul is at Corinth. And Luke records that he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, that is, the Messiah. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. 
I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. In fact, the book of Acts ends in Acts 28, verses 23 to 28. I won't read that for you, but it ends with the nation of Israel again rejecting the message that Paul is preaching to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul says Isaiah's prophecy of Isaiah 6 has come true upon this generation. They have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. He will turn to the Gentiles. Look at verse 11 again. I say then, I say then, that is in light of this reality that a few have been chosen to obtain unto salvation, unto the righteousness of God, and the rest were hardened. I say then, in light of all of that, have they been irretrievably ruined? Has the nation been set aside? Now, you know the answer to this, don't you? Paul, again, constructs this question in the Greek in such a way that demands an emphatic denial. He gives it to us here, verse 11, may it never be, right? May genetop. If you learn any Greek phrase, learn that phrase. No, 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 no. God forbid, may it never be. It is the strongest possible way for him to deny this possible inference. Each time Paul uses this, and by the way, he uses this expression ten times in this Roman epistle. And each time he uses it, he uses it to deny what appears to be a logical conclusion based upon his preaching and people's observations of reality. Over and over again, he he raises a question, a quote, logical question, and then he absolutely denies it. Israel has not been hardened beyond recovery by God. The national election of Israel, as outlined in many places in the Old Testament, not the least of which is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, absolutely stands firm. So you can feel the weight of this, and it's important that you do. I want to trace with you these questions. So go back to chapter 3, verse 4. This is all old ground. If you've been with me for a long time, if you've not, it's new ground to you. But you can always go to the website and you can find prior sermons. Romans chapter three, verse three, Paul says, what then? If some did not believe, talking about Israel again, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Look at verse four. May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. He says God's word, God's promise absolutely stands for Israel in spite of their unfaithfulness. Look down to verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. That is, that if it, our unrighteousness draws out the righteous judgment of God, then God is not the one who's behind all this, is it? He says, God forbid. Such a foolish thought. Down to verse 31. Where Paul has been laboring away here at the end of chapter 3 to establish that justification is by faith. 
And he says in verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Have we brought the law to no account? And Paul says, may it never be. On a contrary, we establish the law. Flipping over to chapter 6. Paul has again been demonstrating the reality that we have died in originally in Adam. And now that we have died in Adam and have come to life in Christ through obedience to Christ. That somehow someone might say that this grace of God, which is demonstrated for all to see in the fact that Christ overcomes Adam's incredible sin, that maybe what we ought to do is keep on sinning because it keeps on demonstrating God's grace and God gets glory when his grace is demonstrated. So let's keep on sinning so that grace might increase. Verse one. Paul says, what are you, nuts? God forbid such a blasphemous conclusion. Down to verse 15. Paul demonstrates we have died with Christ in spiritual union with him. Therefore, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, that we are no longer under the law. It is no longer our taskmaster over us. And so question what then? Verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? That is, does it not matter how we behave anymore since we're under grace? And Paul says. No. May it never be. Chapter 7. Paul talking about how the law could never do what needed to be done. That is to make us righteous. That all it does is inflame our sin. And so he says, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No. No, 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 no. Over to verse 13, same chapter. The law is holy and good, verse 12. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Is it the law that caused me to die? May it never be. May it never be. Chapter 9. And verse 14. Paul has been laboring away here and speaking about God's mysterious and sovereign election and how he has often chosen the younger and put them in priority over the older. He says in verse 13, just as we have, as it was written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Is God unjust in his election of some unto salvation and others whom he passes over and leaves in their sin? Verse 14. Answer. May it never be. May it never be. Chapter 11. Verse 1. In light of Israel's disobedience. In light of the fact that verse 21, chapter 10, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In light of all that, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And then the verse before us now. I say then, 
I say then, their rejection of the righteousness of God that is available only through a faith union with Jesus Christ, which they have refused and which has caused them to stumble, has it irretrievably and irrevocably ruined the nation of Israel? Have they been set aside? Has the, has the Gentiles, have the Gentiles absorbed the Jews and their great and glorious promises? Answer? Talk to me. Answer? May it never be. Paul is just as emphatic here as he was in all of those other passages where in the same way people were making erroneous what and apparently logical deductions and conclusions from what he has been teaching. And Paul corrects them every step of the way and says, I don't care what you think is logical to you. I don't care what you think I've taught. Let me just tell you that what you think I've taught is not what I've taught. May it never be. And the same is true here. With every bit as much vengeance, with every bit as much force of, of Greek that he can muster in this situation, he says, may Geneta, may it never be. Therefore, therefore, as people who take seriously, listen to me, as people who take seriously the integrity of the Scriptures and the progressive unfolding of God's revolution, uh, revelation, we should protest any theological system that teaches that God has rejected His people Israel and consigned them to the trash heap of history. It is absolutely not true. And there is no more forceful way that Paul could say it. So when you hear that, you must reject it. You must reject it. It is your duty. And that takes me to the second duty this morning. The second duty is that we have something to proclaim. Something we should proclaim. We should protest that erroneous conclusion, but there is something we must proclaim. There is a, there is a glorious and magnificent spiritual theological reality that we must proclaim, and we must proclaim it everywhere. Second half of verse 11. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. The word translated transgression here, it speaks of a specific sinful act. In the case of Israel, that act was their rejection and crucifixion of their own Messiah. John 19, verse 15, so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Paul says that horrific event, that horrific event. Event rather than frustrating God's purposes is being used by him to accomplish what verse 25 Paul calls his mysterious plan. God's mysterious plan. By their transgression, by their crucifixion of their own Messiah, Paul says, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. Kind of like when a mother or a child sees 
small child sees his mother holding another baby in her arms. You can kind of relate to this, right? Comes running up jealously, grabs her leg or skirt or whatever. He wants to be held too. That's the idea here. As vast numbers of Gentile conversions down through the centuries, it stands out as a constant reminder that the messianic hope of Israel is being realized among the Gentiles. He is their Messiah, and yet the Gentiles are the ones who are benefiting from him. Beloved, even the name Christian is built upon the Old Testament name Messiah. Messiah. Paul goes on and says, Now if their transgression be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment or their fullness be? Jewish rejection of Messiah led to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And Paul says that is riches for the world. Riches for the world. That is, it it purchased the riches of redemption for all ethnic groups, Jew and Gentile alike. In the amazing, mysterious, sovereign plan of God, as Peter says, that which was predestined by God from eternity past, the rejection and crucifixion of Israel's own Messiah leads to redemption and the riches of redemption for all the world. The eternal plan of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. But not only did their rejection of Messiah bring about redemption for the world, but Paul goes on to say their failure is riches for the Gentiles. That is, it specifically was the event that broke down the age-old barrier that had for millennia excluded the Gentiles from the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, had cut them off from that great and glorious covenant that God had given to Abraham so long ago. You see this if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, page 1170. Paul writes there, verse 11. He says, therefore, remember. Therefore, remember, verse 11, chapter 2, that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you are at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. That is the Abrahamic covenant and all the covenants that derive from it, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Israel's rejection. Paul says, is riches for the Gentiles. It has opened up to them the promised blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul says further here, though, take a look back at verse 12. 
is an interesting progression here. He says if their rejection, their transgression, their rejection of Messiah is the riches of redemption for the world, and specifically their failure is the riches for the Gentiles of entrance into the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, and then notice what he says. How much more will their fullness be? How much more will their fullness be? Same word, by the way, over in verse 25, where he speaks about the fullness of the Gentiles. That is the idea of being filled up to numerical strength. Certain number being brought in. The context here, the background, again, remember, is that a a few have been chosen, verse 7, to receive the righteousness of God through Christ, right? But the rest have been hardened. That is, the vast majority of the nation has been hardened. And Paul said that has brought incredible blessing to the world and to the Gentiles. How much more blessing will there be when the numerical strength of Israel is brought back up again? When the unbelieving majority experiences the conversion and joins that believing remnant, look again, verse 26, all Israel will be, you fill in the word, saved. Saved. There is a parallelism going on here in this verse. The parallelism is that that there is great blessing and, and riches in the in the rejection by Israel and the hardening by God, how much more will there be when that hardening is reversed and the nation turns and embraces their Messiah? If there has been all of this coming from this horrific event, how much more will come when they turn and bow the knee to receive her? How can there be much more? Again, look at that verse. How much more? He piles up the adjectives. How can there be much more than our present redemption? Those of you who know and have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith you are redeemed, right? Your sin has been forgiven. Your Destiny with God is eternally secure. Paul has demonstrated that through chapter 8. There is incredible blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You enjoy the relationship. John 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You are in a loving, accepting relationship with the creator of the universe. That is incredible blessing. So why and in what way can Paul say that there is much more beyond that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because this is when it gets really exciting. Really exciting. Seems to me the only way to understand this promise, in light of all the biblical revelation, is that Paul is referring here to the greater blessings that come worldwide when Israel's great millennial kingdom comes to this earth. It is a time when, according to her prophets, the world will experience the personal, visible, 
physical reign of Messiah on his throne in Jerusalem. It's an amazing time. Let me review with you just a few, just a few of the attributes of that great and glorious kingdom that's coming. If you're good with your Bible, you can turn and follow me. If I don't want you to get lost, though, in the page turning, okay? Because I'm going to move. So if you're good, follow along. If you're not sure, you can find all these verses because some of them are going to be in the places where your Bible pages are probably stuck together, okay? Then just listen. This is a time when righteousness and peace will characterize this earth. Psalm 72, verse 7. Psalm 72, 7. It says, in his days, the righteous will flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Turn to the right to Isaiah chapter 11. Become familiar, by the way, with Isaiah 11. You're going to turn there a lot. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 2. Remember, Isaiah 11 follows Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 7. Okay? That's my exegetical insight for you. That is that the one born of a virgin, right, prophesied in Isaiah 7, the one whom the government will rest on his shoulders, Isaiah 9, is the one spoken of here in Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Oh, we live in such a time, such a time when justice is up for sale. When it depends what kind of contacts, what kind of influence, what kind of wealth you've accumulated, who you know, there are two kinds of justice. There are the justice for the rich and there is the justice for the poor. But it will not always be that way. It will not always be that way. It will not always be when human judges and juries, limited by their inability to look deep inside the human heart and to know the true motives, to know the truth, and thus unable to mete out true justice, a time is coming when God Himself will not judge by what His eyes see or what His ears hear, but he will look straight into the hearts of man and he will know the truth. When the penalty will fit the crime exactly. I read just this week of a man who spent 25 years in prison on a rape conviction that was not true. These, the best justice we can offer is still flawed and imperfect. There is a day coming, beloved, when justice will, will finally reign true for all. There is a day coming when holiness will be common 
not uncommon. The prophet Zechariah speaks of such a day. You've got to turn far to the right, just before, the, just before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20. Zechariah 14 and verse 20. And he says, in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judea will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite or a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. What is he saying? He's saying that holiness will be so common that it will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and even the basic cooking utensils will be as holy as those articles that that once were used in the temple. We live a long way from that today, don't we? If you could describe anything today in this world, there's no way you could use the term holy to describe it. This is a most profoundly unholy world. The prophets go on. In Isaiah chapter 65, they speak of the fact that the curse will be lifted and paradise regained. Isaiah 65. Beginning in verse 20. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses in chariots. Wrong verse. Wrong chapter. Sorry. That was 66. That's some good stuff there, too. All right. Here we go. 65. They're all looking at that and going, what Bible is he reading from? All right. Here we go. Isaiah 65, verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or build children, bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall do no harm or evil in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Isaiah 29 and verse 18. The prophet tells us it'll be a time when sickness will be removed. Verse 18, and on that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom, the eyes of the blind shall see. I read to you earlier in chapter 35, similar promises. Oh, what a day, huh? What a day when the blind will see, when the deaf will hear, when the lame will walk. Do you know that during Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, that for a period extending over a year, he banished illness from the northern part of Israel? 
Everyone who came, he healed. And believe me, if you heard somebody could heal your child who was sick or you who were lame or couldn't see or blind, whatever it was, don't you think you would come? Well, as you would come, so they came. And Jesus healed them all. He gave them a glimpse of his great and glorious kingdom when disease and infirmity and illness will be banished. When the animal kingdom will experience peace once again, I'm not going to turn you there, but Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Now I am going to turn you there. Isaiah 11. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The animal kingdom once again experiencing the peace for which they were once created. Paul says in Romans 8.21 that the, that the creation suffers under futility even to this day waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Or here's another one for you. Lawbreakers will be punished and justice truly done, right? Verse 5. Righteousness, the belt about his loins. Faithfulness, the belt about his waist. How about chapter 9? Chapter 9, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, here's one for you. Ezekiel's prophecy. How about Ezekiel chapter 43? Ezekiel 43. Earlier in Ezekiel's prophecy, the Lord takes him in a vision to the temple and reveals to him the departure of the Shekinah glory of God. How God almost reluctantly, step by step, slowly exits the Holy of Holy and then the temple itself and up over the temple mount and off. That is, that God no longer dwells among His people. But in another vision, here in chapter 43, God speaks again to Ezekiel. He says, verse 1, Then He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when He came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. Here it is, verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God again, dwelling with His visible presence among His people. The pillar of fire by day. And cloud by night, there the great Shekinah glory of God filling the temple of Israel that all might see. 
Oh, here's another one for you. How about Revelation chapter 20? Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over so that he would not, should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the day when Satan has been bound in the abyss, huh? When he is no longer roaming this world seeking whom he might devour. When he is no longer deceiving the nations and inspiring them to conspire against the people of God that they might destroy them. I'm looking forward to the day when according to Micah chapter 4, the horrors of war will cease. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There you go. All right, you're there. You think that's funny, huh? That's how I got through my ordination exam. (laughs) Micah chapter 4, verse 3. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. By the way, do you know that that is inscribed on the doors or over the doorway of the United Nations building in New York? They're not doing a very good job. They're not doing a very good job. There are more wars in this century, this and bleeding out of the 20th, than any one prior. Is the United Nations going to bring this true? Not a chance. Not a chance. It will be a time when peace and prosperity will come upon this earth. Micah chapter 4, verse 4. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. No one will make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. By the way, this is a direct rebuke of communism. In God's great and glorious kingdom, he says, each of you will sit under your own vine and under your own fig tree. Private ownership in the millennium. I like that. Amos, chapter 9. Same theme. Amos 9, verse 13. Amos 9, 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of graves him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. 
And the plowman overtakes the reaper. Do you understand what that's saying? That's saying they're still gathering the crops out of the field when it's time to plow again. It takes the whole growing season to gather in the abundance of produce that the land now produces. When the treader of grapes overtakes him who sows seeds, when the grapes are so abundant that you're still harvesting them when it's time to plant again. God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken for you are dust into dust. You shall return. That's the world we live in today. You sit down to eat your meal, men, with the sweat still dripping from your brow. You eke out a living. The creation fights you every step of the way. But it won't always be that way. It's not going to always be that way. There's a great and glorious day coming when the earth will once again fulfill that for which God has created and designed it. When the curse will be overturned. When the earth will be so abundant that famine and starvation will be no more. Can you imagine? Can you imagine when all of the world resources that are invested in the making of war are turned to the production of peace? Can you imagine what it will be like when the earth no longer fights us? Can you imagine what it will be like when the king himself sits on the throne and dispenses justice perfectly, totally, with none who evade his stare? Can you imagine what it will be like? When instead of being a curse to punctuate the speech of ignorant men, that the name of God will be on the lips of the people in a great and glorious doxology. Can you imagine? No, you can't. You can't and neither can I. We live in a broken, busted, bent, twisted, deformed and defiled world. We have been redeemed. We have been redeemed. But Paul says something much more is coming. When the redeemed of the Lord enter in to the glories of His earthly kingdom. The blessings we have now For sure, they motivate and generate profound gratitude and worship in your heart. That's true. We still live in a world, don't we, where wickedness reigns? Where unjust people people prosper? Where even God's children suffer the effects of the fall? I mean, Christians are not immune to this world, are we? Don't we still get cancer? Don't we still suffer the ravages of sin? 
deep down inside. Deep down inside. We long, we long for that day, don't we? We long for that day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, verse 9. Beloved, that's the, that's the good news of the gospel. Remember earlier I said something we should proclaim. This is the good news of the gospel that that day is coming. It is coming. God is going to provide for his people Israel her long-awaited kingdom. And those of us who have been united by faith to Israel's Messiah will join them there in that blessed place. Now, that's a message worth proclaiming from the housetops. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government shall rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Or how about this one? After Christ humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, beloved, our gospel message is not just simply. Not just simply that your sin can be forgiven. That Christ is. Death is your atonement, that he has purchased your redemption, that his righteousness is yours by faith. That you are, you have eternal life, you are rightly related to your creator, you're going to enjoy his benefits forever. That, that is all of our message to be sure. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Our message beyond that is that the God of all this world will do right. That the misery, that the suffering, that the injustice, that the war, that all the things that, that tug at a thoughtful human heart and cause us great grief will one day be set aside. And that the people of God, those who are united to Him by faith in Christ, will enjoy life as it was designed to be. What a great and glorious gospel we have. It is good news. It is good news. But let me say to you this morning, if, if you do not know this Messiah, you may know about Him. You may have heard His name. 
But if you do not know Him personally, if you have not by faith embraced His sacrifice on the cross, His death for yours, His righteousness for your unrighteousness, if you have not bowed your knee, if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, then you have nothing to look forward to but an endless existence separated from all the blessing and mercy and glory of God in a place called the lake of fire. For the Scripture tells us the torment goes on ever and ever and ever. I invite you, I invite you to bend your knee to bend your knee now in faith and confess Jesus as Lord. Because you know what? You will bend it. Paul says every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. Even those in hell will confess that Jesus is God. To the glory of God the Father. Bend your knee now by faith. And know eternal life. Because you will most assuredly Bend it at the tip of a sword in the age to come. Let me pray and we'll come and sing together here. And as we're finishing that song, if you have something you want to talk about, something of a spiritual nature, concerns, questions, I'm here to talk to you. I I would welcome that opportunity. You'll come down here. I'll be down here near the front. You come see me and we will talk. Okay? Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, what a great and glorious kingdom is coming upon this earth. Jesus Himself, in the night in which He's betrayed and instituted the Lord's Supper, He said He would never drink of the fruit of the vine again until He drinks it anew His Father's kingdom. We look forward to that coming day. Lord God, when Christ will return, when His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. Will He establish His throne in Jerusalem, His capital city? And He rule there the Lion of the tribe of Judah. With the saints of old, our Father, we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.